Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to the Jane Espenson Happy Fun Time Podcast Hour. Just shut up, William, and take me. This week, we're discussing Season 7, Episode 8 of Buffy, Sleeper, and Season 4, Episode 11 of Battlestar Galactica, The Hub. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, Jane Espenson. All Espenson, all the time. <laughs> this I'm so excited that this worked out. She is the patron saint of our podcast, whether or not she knows that or I'm, approves of it. I'm we almost certain she does not know of it. Um, I don't think she would have anything against it, but I don't know her. No, but she seems, sure she seems like she's tweeted at me before. I mean, that's sure. No, she's she's a lovely person. Um, and I, I mean, there's the thing of she's been involved at least to some, even if only peripherally, to every single show that we've discussed on this podcast. But also, like, I don't think that there's just the novelty of that. Like, I genuinely think she's one of the best writers sure. of any of the shows that we've talked about. Like, I think she could easily be at the top of well, any of those shows of best writers that they have. And then the fact that she's as prolific and varied as she is and has worked on so many different things just makes yeah. her um, a, a perfect candidate to track across all these different years and seasons yeah. and and everything and so it is fun that these are kind of lining up the way that well they are. and so yeah i mean right not just that but like the type of writing she does like the way that she takes characters like for example jonathan who she didn't create but she kind of made <laughs> you know what i mean like like jonathan mm -hmm. as a character technically existed before jane espenson started writing on buffy but with like episodes like Superstar and like Earshot and the you know those types of episodes that just really built up the character a lot and you know mm -hmm. gave form and substance to that and I feel like that's that's what she does like all the time you know whether the character's in the you know more obscure sort of character you know who's in the background or you know some of the more prominent ones like yeah. She stuff like she does stuff with Baltar's character in this episode that's totally Baltar, but has never been done before. Like that's the type of stuff that mm. she does, you know, like his proselytizing a centurion. Totally something Baltar would do. Not nobody else mm. would have thought to do it though. And that's the kind of thing that right. I just feel like she right. she does and, and kind of gets in there and just is like it it's like um the last battle with C.S. Lewis where like it's it's more mm. real than the real world like you know kind of thing like like she right. writes characters that right. are more real than the characters than the real characters if that I've makes sense like I yeah. maybe yeah. I, that's a weird way of saying it maybe but um that's kind of the type of thing well, that I think of in how she characterizes characters and it's the use of humor too which is so it has such a signature, you know, that like, I don't know quite how to articulate like why her jokes are funnier or different than anyone else's, but it, it's things like, 
like you mentioned, like the, the proselytizing a centurion, like that's funny, but then even using humor to put like the, the Roslyn Baltar rivalry is very well established at that point. Like you said, it's not like she made that up, mm-hmm. but she makes it funny in a way that it, 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 it has been before, but there's something about having them just bicker over how to yell at the Cylon that is just like, you know, a particularly Espensonian spin on that dynamic, but without taking away the tension between them, you're, she's also like bringing out the kind of humanity and, and pettiness of their rivalry and everything. Um, that they have to argue even over petty things like who's talking to the Cylon better, even though neither of them are doing sure. a very good job. Um, <laughs> so there's just things like that. It's that that use of humor that, you know, I mean, obviously coming from the Whedon shows, those are kind of steeped in humor to begin with. But hers have a particular quality that seems unique even within that weed and verse sure. and then oh. writing for torchwood or bsg which maybe are a little grittier she still brings that that humor but without it ever being like gimmicky it's never like oh she's the comedy writer who writes the silly episodes no. like sometimes her episodes are silly but they're never not also truthful or tense or scary or whatever else you want yeah. them to be yeah, no, I definitely agree. And and I was just, like, as you were saying that, just even thinking back to our recent conversations, conversations about conversations with dead people, right? Like, um, where, like, she wrote the Dawn scenes primarily. And, like, there's some really, like, not funny stuff that happens. Though. Now, there's some funny stuff, too, like, in the beginning with her dancing around and, you know, listening to, like, the mariachi music and, like, blowing right. up. Uh, you know, right. stuff in and the, the microwave the, and the escalating smashing yeah. of things and all of and, that. But yeah. like, but yeah, like I mean, there's some really scary, freaky, and poignant like stuff that also goes down. So it's not like, yeah, it's not like she's and the blending of the two. The, right. It's the way that the the humor of bashing up the house turns into a horrific thing. Mm-hmm. That like that one action sort of straddles the line between both really upsetting and also kind of hilarious at the same time. From like normal teenager hijinks to supernatural freaky, you know, right. Fighting for her life and her mother's soul. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yes. So, Um, but to talk about these episodes, um, yeah. Yeah. So we have um, Buffy uh, sleeper, um, which was written by Janice Benson um, and David Fury. Uh, and then the BSG mm-hmm. episode that we'll talk about after um, the hub. Uh, again, a lot of not funny stuff that happens in it, but like amidst it is, are those moments <laughs> and mostly Baltar. Like, like she does seem to like zone in on a character, like in a particular episode sometimes, mm-hmm. like, cause it is real. Like Baltar yeah. is kind of the comic relief in this episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And not that like, like there are maybe one or two other funny moments like without Baltar or with mm-hmm. other characters, but like that's like he, he like him shouting at the hybrid and Roslyn's just like, Yeah, you're not doing anything different, you're just shouting at like <laughs> Yeah. Well, and like, you know, it seems like again to put that 
unique spin on things. My guess, if I was a betting person, would be that like the idea of the hybrid randomly jumping them is something you come up with in the writer's room. Like whoever it was sure. that first said that idea that like this was this is in the outline of what we want the story to be is like, okay, the story is that they're heading on their mission, but they're kind of not really in control of where they're going and how they're going there, that the hybrid is sort of jumping right. incrementally towards this. But it's Espenson who makes that funny and who makes that like, it's going to happen in the middle of sentences and it's going to happen like only when you're like, it's getting that timing just right so that it happens at the most inconvenient sure. times so that like Rosalind can kind of roll her eyes as she's jumping like, Oh, here we go again. Or, um, you know, or Baltar kind of that moment where he says, uh, you know, Oh, I opened myself up at a spiritual level and then <laughs> yeah. boop, jump, you know, like, like right as he's gloating about how he has a connection right, right. with it and everything. So making that like, it's not just like, oh, we're going to jump randomly. It's like, oh, no, it has to happen at the right comedic beat to make it sort of quirky and everything. Um, yep. So, yeah. Well, we, I, I don't, not to jump ahead to jump yeah. BSG too much, but um, jump. Although that would be appropriate. What if we just like screamed jump randomly and like went to a different spot? Talked about like whatever, outline, in whatever yeah. order. <laughs> that would. Probably not make for very interesting or, podcast, although it might be fun to kind of It could try. be our most interesting podcast episode ever. <sighs> I'm just saying. Let's not do it, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not that. Um, um, yeah, no, we're not quite that experimental. <laughs> um, we're not as brave as, as our hero. Um, Okay. Um, so Buffy. All right. Let's talk about the, the Buffy episode first, um, which does have its humorous moments. And I think maybe we can point them out. Maybe a little less than the comedy element of the BSG. Yeah. Like it's not quite as, um, you know, for all the darkness in both of them, it's maybe a little more straightforward in, in Sleeper. Um, but it certainly has its moments of of levity and silliness and everything um and it's actually very focused i kind of realized while going through the notes um apart from the little bit with giles which we're going to talk about at the end it's very much spike centric mm. um you kind of mentioned honing in on a character and that's like literally what this episode does is everybody else is sort of characters are revealed in relation to Spike or the plot that centers around his actions and sure. everything. Um, so we can kind of just go through it in order, I think, and um, take it sort of along his journey. Um, so yeah, it's following straight after the previous episode, which she also uh, had a part in, um, which was conversations with dead people and Buffy's, what Holden told Buffy about Spike being his sire. Mm -hmm. What was the word? The word yeah. that you used? Oh, yeah. Sire. Um, so, yeah. And we so we saw at the end of that him biting a girl and, like, 
kind of reveling in licking the blood off his fingers and everything. So kind of back to his old bloody William mm -hmm. ways. Um, so I didn't kind of put this in the outline to talk about, but just from a kind of more meta point of view, um, the way in which Buffy's attitude and suspicions about that, I feel like kind of invite some, uh, like similarity to what the audience is going through mm. of you're kind of being presented with what seems like, you know, incontrovertible evidence that he is doing this thing. Like, it's not just that Holden plants a seed and whispers something in Buffy's ear. It's like we, the audience, see the whole scene of Spike meeting a girl and chatting her up and walking out with her and t walking her home. And then you see him kill her at the end. Um, so it's kind of that makes it a lot harder to discount what Holden says as just a lie or a misunderstanding or something. Um, but at the same time, I think you want at a certain point, you want to be with Buffy and think, well, there has to be some explanation. Like whether it's because he has the chip or it's because he has a soul or it's just because you start to like him a little bit, despite mm -hmm. yourself. Um, you don't, like you're kind of waiting for that that other thing. What is it that's going to explain this and make it, if not okay, at least understandable? That it can't just be as straightforward as he's back to being a full-blown vampire. Um, which there is. Like in the end, like, sure. you know, kind of you're expecting there to be some ulterior explanation and, and there is, but there's still that sense of you're kind of with Buffy in the moment. Um, whereas like Xander, you've said is like if he's consistent about anything in his entire story, it's it's his feelings about vampires and about Spike and Angel yep. and how they're evil and dangerous and not to be trusted and how many times do we have to learn this lesson and it's always the same and yeah. you know that's his kind of story and he's sticking to it mm -hmm. um and again like we've said like it's that's true too that's kind of even if there isn't and more to the story than we realize it's also true that spike is behind these these murders so Xander's point is kind of equally well taken as much as Buffy's. So it's an interesting kind of reflection of, I think, playing with the audience expectation of you're being shown something that seems to be true, but you're also kind of waiting back with your arms crossed going, okay, I'm waiting for how they're going to get out of this. How is Spike not going to end up being fully responsible for these things that he's doing? Um yeah, and so in that note, I mean, it almost becomes sort of a noir-type episode in a way, right? Like, it's sure. trying to figure out what, who the murderer is and, you know, how it's done and, you know, what room or whatever, like, what location, like, all of that. Um, sure, a little of a whodunit <clears throat> kind of. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, or as much of a how done it as anything else. Like, 
if you're kind of sure that it's spike in the beginning well it's more a question yes of, do you believe the evidence of what you're shown and how and reconciling for, that with what we know to be true of his for the viewer for sure way. like that right like for us as viewers right we we know that spike has bitten the woman and kind of if we believe that holden was not lying which i guess you know isn't necessary like we don't necessarily have to believe that like xander seems to believe it and buffy does but also like you know there's also a part of us that maybe is like well maybe there's a lie going on here like you said like maybe there's not mm -hmm. um maybe we don't have enough evidence about exactly what's going on to really know for sure so um you know i could see people not believing holden up front and or at least not taking a vampire at face value, which is kind of Buffy's point, mm -hmm. right? Or, or, um, mm -hmm. Willow's. sorry, Willow's point, and 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 Spike as well sort of makes that argument. You know, you have you have a lie from, you know, a pile of dust, right? Like that's what it amounts right. to is is you have a vampire telling you something, and it wouldn't be the first time a vampire has lied to Buffy um, or to anyone, mm -hmm. so. Um, right, and Willow is very much like the kind of disinterested voice of reason here. Like she doesn't have the strong feelings one way or the other that Buffy or Xander does. She's kind of the one sitting back from a more detached point of view going like, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't trust what anybody tells us because we know there's this big bad spirit that's trying to manipulate and deceive mm -hmm. us and it's going around telling people things so we probably shouldn't be too quick to trust anything on the other hand she's also saying you know just because the spirit is evil doesn't necessarily mean that it is lying when it says sure. things that it, it can say things that might be true like it might be a threat about what's coming and be perfectly honest about what's coming and just kind of trying to scare us right. or and maybe it's not you know or use it or to use that fear to influence us or whatever so even if holden was not holden doesn't mean we can't believe everything it, it really she kind of ends up in a place of it neither confirms nor denies what you're told like right. it could be complete lies it could be the absolute truth and right now there's just no way to know well and i mean you get xander being the you know he he's the one who like talks the talk of objectivity but like clearly isn't right like we know him well enough to know right, right. he's not actually objective he's just using the language of objectivity but like only insofar as it like supports his own beliefs about spike <laughs> um sure right right like his his of buffy saying i'm not saying i don't believe him and then he says well you just don't you just don't want to and it's like sure but like also like like you're saying the same goes the other way around you know that xander is also quick to believe in anything that confirms his opinions about spike now that doesn't make him wrong either but it it he is going to consistently fall on the side of suspicion right. you know as consistently as buffy falls on the right. side of giving the benefit of right the doubt. so maybe like um, the facts are the facts but the way he interprets them is always going to be a particular way <laughs> mm -hmm. um
Um, yeah, and I think it's very much a both and situation with the two of them. Of, I think Buffy's right that there's more to these particular vampires than Xander often gives them credit for, that they're more complicated and conflicted. Certainly Spike is now that he has a soul. Um, but Xander's also right in his constant refrain that don't forget how dangerous they are. Um, just because they are complicated doesn't mean they're not also extremely dangerous and capable of great violence and everything. So those are like both true. There's not sure. necessarily, uh, those are not necessarily contradictory. And, I mean, and you get ideas. Anya being like, well, I, I told the truth all the time when I was evil, like, which is... Right. Lying and deceit don't necessarily tell you that something is is bad, or just because it's honest doesn't mean that it's good or right. whatever. You um, know? Yeah, and like, the the best lies are, you know, true. It's just that they're like half-truths, or you know, right. partially true, or whatever. Like, they're not... Um, you know, just because something's true in part doesn't necessarily mean, like, that the assumptions that you make about it or that, like, the way that you're interpreting it is actually true. Mm -hmm. um, so, Which is an interesting kind of setup for whatever this big bad is in this final season because, I mean, I'm trying to think if there are comparable examples from previous seasons, but the way that it... You know, it's making me think of the phrase post-truth, which we're very familiar sure. with in today's world. Like, the way that it attacks what they know. Mm. You know, those kind of epistemological aspects of things that, like, they're used to having big bads that they can fight. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely been seasons where the, the build-up to the reveal of the villain is very gradual. That they don't necessarily know from day one what it is. Sure. And there's... And, an escalation and or, or, or a yeah. passing yeah or like a passing of the baton or or maybe there's something like with the trio where they're it's they're lurking in the bath the background the whole time but like they, the scoobies just aren't yeah. aware of it and um, and the escalation like, sort of little... happens at the end and it, it like because yeah like for the trio right. like it took a while for them to even be considered capable of being the big bad like you know what i mean like right right like we see them kind of work up to it in real time yeah. almost like earning the title or whatever but I, this is interesting that you know they they know that there is a big bad but they know nothing about it right. <laughs> they just know that it's like big and bad and, and that a lot of things are way, talking about it because you because you get like a lot of things are talking about it and they can't trust their own senses yeah. because they are now aware of the fact that they're being visited by people that appear trustworthy mm -hmm. and and may not be and so they how can much can they even really you know buffy at the end to kind of jump ahead is saying we need to learn about this thing but how do you do that when you don't know what it is and you can't believe anything you're told about sure. how do you like you know, in terms of your research, which is what they like to mm -hmm. do, how do you research that? You know? Um, yeah. So it's kind of an interesting 
there's like a psychological element to that that I think is different than some of the other big bads that have been more like a straightforward threat to the world or right, like physical Sunnydale threat, or yeah. their lives or whatever. Um, or even like, even if it's, the, you know, the universe, it's still the physical universe. Whereas like, this is more, a more kind of insidious mm. thing that is more going, I think, attack, going to attack like their very understanding of what's going on and what they're even fighting and what they can believe about sure. it. Um, um, yeah. So we did our, actually end up jumping all our, we just didn't say jump when we went from jump. place to place. Um, yeah. So like maybe getting back to spike a little bit, do you want to just kind of run through like the different, like, I mean, we kind of talked about, you know, Buffy and Xander kind of their initial reactions, like, so from there, like I guess maybe just, yeah, like I well I don't I don't want to prescribe because I know you kind of had your thoughts about where you to go, but like maybe just talking through like what happens then. So like he, like he comes home while like Buffy and Xander are talking and, you know, sleeps through the day, but like, um, they can't wait around, so they have like Anya come over right and watch him. <laughs> mm -hmm. and and I, right that's become Anya's thing is like on call for whenever they need sure. someone to like watch over a situation and and keep it well eye and on it's it. not real clear what she's doing like during the daytime at this point right like sure. I mean I guess she's still at the magic box but like like we've seen we saw her right, like cleaning like, it up and not stuff. so much a box wasn't that Willow's yeah line? like the magic box, not so much a box anymore. Right, like, so, like, yeah, like, we don't even know, like, kind of what her status is at this point. And maybe that's fine. Right. Maybe, like, the writers didn't have a real clear idea of what her status was either when they were writing it. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, like, she does seem to be the on-call. And it's also, like, like, she's still kind of part of the group, right? Like, it, like, right. you know, the stuff between her and Xander sucked, but, like, didn't completely, like, leave her out in the cold and you know again um mm -hmm. especially once like you know she became human again and like Buffy mm -hmm. calls her a friend and like is helping her out and stuff so um right but yeah i mean she comes over to watch like and of course i mean so of course like there's the callbacks obviously to like her and Spike having sex, but then also like her being a mortal human again, right? Like, and kind of having that fear mm -hmm. of, you know, what Spike might do, like if he actually is evil. And, right, right. She's more vulnerable um, now than she than she was recently. Right. Yeah. So, um, but also like, well, and, and but like not so vulnerable that she's unwilling to like go in and look for evidence about his evilness, like, while he's sleeping. <laughs> right. Um, right, right. His, like, necklaces of human teeth or whatever he keeps. Right. You know, his, Looking his, for his mementos trophies. from yeah. his killings. Right. Um, well, and to... I mean, the thing with Spike is funny, of, like, he catches her and she... You kind of improvises 
poorly, although he kind of does seems to buy it to a certain extent that like, oh, she's here, um, you know, to you know, pay him a visit and everything. <laughs> um, but like you also kind of get that that's like her excuse of sure. like why she's snooping around in his bed and everything. Um, whereas like, I don't know, you mentioned her not being totally cast out from the group and I'm getting a little sense of like the, the warmth between her and Xander starting to return mm. a little bit that like there's some, it's, I mean, there's, it's clearly not quite as angry as it was sure. at its peak. Well, um, and, but there's even a little bit of that flirtiness there, um, of, She's like, oh, if I get vamped, I'm going to bite your ass. And he says, wouldn't be the first time. But sure. Like, that's like that old, like, kind of teasing flirtation banter that they used to have. Um, you know, that's like the kind of thing you probably wouldn't say when you're in the middle of a really awful breakup. That's a kind of like, now that we're more comfortable with each other again, kind of joke. Um, yeah. Which I guess is, I mean, having the scene with her and Spike only highlights that. Like, the last time she was alone with Spike, things with Xander were, you know, at their worst. Mm -hmm. And now, here she is again, but everything is kind of light and funny in a way that it wasn't. Well... It kind of shows how, like, the, how much it's changed. And that's, I mean, that point. there's also a little snide remark from Xander about that, too. Like, you didn't mind... Right. being with him before like <laughs> um right yeah yeah i mean i you know i don't think i disagree like certainly i think the end of like, the episode um you know where anya becomes human again um and takes back i, I forget what the name of the episode is off the top of my head now um you know, kind of at the end of there, like, I do feel like there is that moment of re reconciliation between them. And not that, like, mm -hmm. everything's perfect and hunky-dory necessarily, but yeah, like, I mean, there at least seems to be a friendship to a certain degree. I mean, and that doesn't even mean that, like, the things they may have said or done to each other or about each other don't still hurt or whatever, mm -hmm. but, like, I don't know, I feel like when... Like, there is a point where, like, if you get into a really big argument with someone and then time goes by and you can kind of get back to, like, a little bit of that. And um, mm -hmm. it is interesting because they, like, they weren't friends before they started dating, right? Like, this was, it was, like, she stayed in Sunnydale because she was interested in him after becoming human the first time, right? Like, that was, mm -hmm. like, that was the thing was like, she tried to get him to run away and leave during the apocalypse and all of that. And he said no. And so she stayed behind and then they like right. started dating. And so like, like it wasn't like they were friends or anything before. So it's not even like there's a lot to build on there, but yeah, it does seem to be that they're getting more comfortable with they're being apart at least. And so like the other piece of it that I actually, I remember thinking about it while I was watching it, but I mean, I don't know how much to make of it, but it's also like she's in Xander and well, Xander's apartment and Spike is staying there. 
just like lounging and reading and stuff. And Spike doesn't question that. So like, mm. I don't know how much, like, is that just like an oversight of the writing? Which I don't want to say it is because it's Jane Espenson. But like, you know, mm. is there, is there like, is it just like, oh, well, we needed to have Anya there. So we're just going to kind of ignore the fact that mm. like, maybe rational people should question why Anya's in her ex-fiance's apartment, just like sit, just like sitting in a chair reading whilst when Spike leaves. Um, or right. you could just say like, Spike just doesn't really care that much about Xander. So like, he's not going to like question it either. Like he doesn't really care right. what Anya does and, and you know, Xander and all that. So maybe, maybe there's that aspect to it or yeah, like, I mean, is she coming over from time to time and hanging out? Like, is there is there, like, more behind calling her over to watch Spike as far as, like, mm-hmm. occasionally she'll come hang out in Xander's apartment and whatever. I know, I mean, we don't have any evidence of that, but it does seem mm-hmm. weird that, like, Spike seems perfectly okay with her just being there and doesn't, like, really question it at all. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, especially after, after, like, just having tried to, like, seduce him, kind of. Right, well, and I was gonna say, like, is it, is he kind of figuring out that they're keeping an eye on him, and he's chalking it up to that, but then, like, no, he kind of does seem to buy the, like, her seducing him yeah. thing. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It didn't, didn't occur to me, but that might be the thing you only notice after you've watched the episode like 10 times. Um, Which I have, but yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, over many years. Sure. But, but yes. yeah, no, I mean the, but, the, it didn't occur to me until just this watch. So like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe that's true. And may, and right. it also might be a factor of like, yeah, just, this the the nature of our podcast and going slowly through these types of things um sure you pick up on those little like plot issues and stuff yeah. plot holes um anyway so yeah so spike leaves though spike leaves um and we see him doing the things that he's so adamantly denying that he's doing you know um goes straight to the bronze mm-hmm. picks up another girl um we get a bit more this time of that you know the 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 big bad spirit is appearing to him and uh egging him on somewhat or you know it's not quite clear until later when you kind of realize he has no memory of of this that it's going on but there's either no memory like of some sort of manipulation yeah. or <laughs> of this place. Um, you know, there's there's either some sort of manipulation or hypnotism or fugue state of some kind mm-hmm. that he's, you know, that, that these uh, spirits show up and he goes into some sort of trance or autopilot mm-hmm. um, where he's not fully aware of what he's doing. Um, yeah, and... Although, of course, it appears as, you know, one of the, I mean, one of the shapes is himself, which is, like, interesting implications of, like, okay, he's, he's not, he's doing it, 
but he's not aware of you the fact that he's doing it but it's also himself telling himself to do it right. so there's like all these layers or, of like right. it's a who is image of himself yeah anyway. like whether it's him or not like right but but almost by having it be an image of himself there's a kind of like suggestion of i don't know unconscious like will there or something that like you know, sure. I almost want to actually, especially at the end, watching it the second time, I'm, I have to jump ahead again. There's no way to talk about it without it. Um, there's a meta, again, element to this being in some ways, um, it's kind of weird, but it's almost a metaphor for Spike's whole vampire existence. Mm -hmm. The idea of he has actions that he has done, which are horrible and unforgivable, but also he was not entirely in control of and therefore not totally responsible for. Sure. And that way that it's like his own guilt and everything is sort of manifested in these things. And the realization of coming to that, uh, I don't know, honesty about that in this episode is kind of a microcosm of the larger process of, regaining the soul mm. and kind of remembering all that what he did and feeling it for the first time yeah. and everything so it's almost like a mini episode version of like his entire story of what it meant to be the <clears throat> vampire and getting your soul and coming out of that and realizing what you've right. done um and i think the fact that one of the one of the the shapes looks like him kind of contributes to that so you have Spike, which isn't really Spike, telling him what to do, being Spike in his worst aspect and mm -hmm. his worst temptation and impulses. Um, but then it also appears as Buffy and, you know, is saying, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you want it, you know, why I want it. There's that kind of like aspect of it of, she's the thing that he won't deny and so if you're going to convince spike to do something appear as buffy and you can convince him and tempt him into all of these regrettable things sure. um yeah um yeah no, i think all of that is true yeah and so and so even like you said him appearing to well him seeing a vision of himself, whether it's himself or not. Um, I mean, it has, it has those shades of Rosalind, you know, if you're my subconscious, I've got to say you're a little full of myself, right? Like, I mean, right. we don't actually know, like, is it his subconscious? Is it something else? I mean, seems to be not unsimilar to some of the things that manifested to other members of the Scooby gang, right? Like last week. So, I mean, that seems to be maybe one direction we could look. Um, also, so there's the song too, right? And it's, it's not until you hear, uh, so like Spike at the end is like talking to Buffy, like, oh, it was here. It was talking to me and singing and like all of that. Like there's, I don't I don't know how much this comes out when you haven't watched it 10 times like I have but um mm -hmm. like definitely <laughs> the song is like a trigger right like that's 
that's mm-hmm. what it's meant to be anyway. And there's sort of um I don't know I don't know if this was like intentional or if it's just kind of the way you know sort of works out but there's sort of like almost the manchurian candidate aspect to it right which goes along with the idea of a sleeper you know which is the title of the episode like that that -hmm. there's sort of like a sleeper agent kind of thing going on here that that there's a trigger Mm -hmm. or something that that there's a programming now how did that programming get there you know all of that like and again like it's not it's not explicitly said that and I don't want to draw like too much connection and like make assumptions where there aren't any. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's like, there is some of that, like that, that song, that song that's being sung, um, which is a famous tune, right? Like early in the morning is the name of the song. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, there have been many other songs like written in the same tune. I know there were, there have been like, Sunday school choruses and stuff that like I remember singing to that tune like with completely different words than like the actual like old original song or whatever um but sort of sure, one of sure but the tune one of those old as yeah the hills, like little lullaby yeah. songs and um yeah again so like when you go back and rewatch like you realize like he's humming that like himself like throughout but like Right. The implication right. being like that there's this trigger happening and it's being mm-hmm. the trigger is coming from the big bad. Um mm-hmm. so Right, which is another aspect too that didn't hit me until just now that we presume and I think it's kind of shown to be true at the end that this is I mean, it could be psychological, but it seems like this is the the big bad that's following him around and haunting him and manipulating him and everything. Um, But it seemed to be in previous episodes that, like, it was worse when he was in the basement, that he was going, being driven sort of crazy by his proximity to this. And then when he left the basement, there was this release and and a dulling of that and that that was part of the reason why they had him live with Xander at all was to keep him away from this thing but kind of what it's suggesting here and I think what we got in the previous episode is that the reach of the spirit is a little further than we had imagined that like it sure it's not only visiting them across Sunnydale it also made it down to Jonathan and Andrew down in Mexico and is manipulating Andrew from right. that far away. So the fact that like okay, is Spike With a little not translation being crazy. Sure, <laughs> sure. But still that's not I'm just reach. I mean, so, yeah, like that's yeah. So are we again are our assumptions or what we think we know about this thing being challenged in that okay, is Spike not acting quite as crazy because he's taken out of the basement or is this thing kind of toying with them and kind of letting him go a little bit when to make you sort of think that he's free and acting normally again. And really like it's, he's in its clutches the entire time. Like it has complete control over him. It can, it's not making him ramble and act like a lunatic, but 
that doesn't mean that he's free mm. and you know it, it hums a tune and follows him around and suddenly he's like you know uh, sleepwalking or in a trance and killing and burying people sure. um so we thought we knew something which is okay it's focused on the basement and like suddenly that's not even really the case anymore um that spike is like just as much in its sort of control as he ever was it's just that everybody let their guard down because he was acting somewhat normal and sure. lucid and everything well and it was maybe not entirely clear how much of that was something evil in the basement you know sure. being close to the hellmouth or whatever um or just the process of regaining a soul right like sure Going and going through that realization of all the evil things that he did, like you said, because I mean we've had that from Angel too, right? Like that, like he still sees mm -hmm. the faces of all the people that he mm -hmm. killed when he was Angelus. So, like, there's precedent for that type of going crazy right. and maybe not totally understanding like your own psyche or whatever. Um, yeah, no, I definitely agree. Like, we should not assume that what they think they know about this thing is necessarily accurate. Because, like, mm. yeah. It seems not to be much confined to the base. Or or if it is, it has, you know, it gets some good furloughs. Like, you know, um, <laughs> it, it can, at least, at, like, maybe it doesn't have complete Maybe it does. Maybe it can go anywhere it wants, whenever it wants, and for as long as it wants. But maybe not. Maybe maybe it is confined to the basement, and so it is stronger there, but can also leave and go elsewhere for periods of time. Um, we don't know enough one way or the other to make a determination, I guess, at this point. But uh, certainly... And, I mean, it's not like... It wouldn't be unprecedented, especially given, like, what we saw with Andrew killing Jonathan, <laughs> you know, like, you know, mm -hmm. over that, like, is, like, is that the Hellmouth or is that something else? Like, we don't, we still don't know what that whole, like, pentagram right. thing was um, mm -hmm. and where that plays into things. So maybe, maybe there is a power you know, in the basement there of something. And maybe it is tied to whatever these visions or manifestations or whatever you want to call them are. Uh, mm -hmm. but yeah. No, and that's it, the, the, definitely I think the connection is, is established. The question is how far out can it mm. extend? You know, how far, how much power does it have beyond that basement and and at what point does it weaken at all if at all you know like how because i think what we're seeing is that it has you know a lot of power to manipulate people's actions even outside of you know certainly the basement or even like the high school or whatever um so yeah um yeah i mean it totally i mean we see to kind of like get into the the ending revelations here it has spike serial killing and 
burying cheerfully humming and burying people in like the basement of a house which he killed the owner so nobody's gonna uh you know find the bodies and everything and yeah that's a like black little humor section of like the fact that the owner is one of the victims and she's like this old lady buried in the basement and everything um you know, that Buffy has to, like, help her out apologize as she, like, dusts her. Like, I'm sorry, ma'am. Um, sure. So, yeah. And, yeah, he gets those memories back in kind of trying to figure out the truth, ends up learning and remembering the truth. Um, and, I mean... Just to kind of reiterate what I said, like, I think that serves as a useful metaphor for his whole process of being sort of regaining his soul in the first place. That sure. There's this, this flood, this flood of memories of all the things he's done. And even, it doesn't even really matter that he didn't really choose to do them. He still has the memories of them and, and did them. Um, at least from his experience, um, it it is a small comfort to realize, oh, I was like asleep, um, when he still has the realization and the memory of yeah. of that. So, um, you know, so there is that thing of of kind of waiting for Buffy to dust him just so that he doesn't have to remember it anymore. Sure. Well, and I think I don't think so. Yeah, like there's an aspect of that. But um, I think there's also an aspect of it like that he he's been listening to whatever this thing has been telling him. And one of the things that we hear it tell him is that Buffy's going to kill him now for all the things that he did. But Buffy realizes mm -hmm. that it's been telling, right? Like, because she's already heard Willow and, mm -hmm. you know, talking about how this thing manipulates through words and how convincing it was and so now mm -hmm. she's kind of prepared when she real like here's what spike mm -hmm. is saying you know she's kind of prepared to realize like oh there is actually something else here talking to him and mm -hmm. manipulating him um well and it's a good connection with the willow stuff from last time because we saw it's used suicide as a t as a temp a temptation sure. in its manipulations that whether it's willow i mean kind of similarly willow and spike like as punishment for their sins and a way of projecting or, or protecting i should say future victims from their inevitable crimes that isn't it better to just take yourself out of the equation that's kind mm -hmm. of a similar you know, I mean, it doesn't get into the psychology of that with Spike here, but like just the idea that like, well, you did these things. So Buffy's going to kill you now and kind of priming him to accept that idea, sure. um, which he does. You know, it's sort of like, you know, well, at least I won't have to even if he's not actively suicidal, there's a kind of comfort of make it so I forget, you know, don't don't. At least, like, if Buffy dusts me, I won't have to live with this stuff. Yeah. Um, um, which is kind of what it was trying to get Willow to believe, although it didn't really work with her. It was, that was where it was headed. Sure. 
Um, so two quick points I want to make too um, is that one we get we get the sense that like this the big bad it's disappointed when Spike starts remembering and calls Buffy right like it tells mm -hmm. him like right. yeah, this yeah. isn't the plan like right. whatever so right. there does seem there does yeah. seem to be. Right, like that's too soon. I guess he doesn't use the word plan or whatever, but like there does seem or to I be. I don't remember what the real. There, there does seem yeah. to be a plan, though, of some kind, right? Like that, that it's working out like that. Mm -hmm. These kills that it was having Spike perform weren't just like random, like that there was something going on deeper here. Uh, maybe you just wanted more bodies to ensure that it could kill Buffy or maybe there was something maybe it was building an army or maybe like like there seemed to be something going on that Spike in his defense right like in, in like this is in defense of the soul of Spike right like that mm -hmm. that when he starts to remember and it's, it's that little trigger thing of finding a pack of cigarettes right like oh, why do I have these? Like, I remember this woman had them. And then there's sort of a flash of, like, her being killed or dead already or whatever. And he sort of starts to remember. And so that, that you know, sort of, that's sort of like Spike's version of Willow realizing that there's something nefarious going on, right? Like, when Willow, like, mm -hmm. that that realization dawns on her, about uh you know like the the cassie manifestation was like oh what what happened did i you know i took it like one step too far right well you know and and maybe shouldn't have suggested the suicide or whatever and and so there mm -hmm. seems to be something like that here like there's not i guess there's a there is a fallibility to the the bad whatever it is like it's not perfect mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. yes it can manipulate yes it can lead people to do things yes it can um you know make you feel bad and scared and you know all this stuff but like we've seen now a couple of instances of its of its fallibility that it's not perfect that it can mess up or or things can happen that it doesn't plan for um mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. one thing, like, like if we're like sort of cataloging new information about the big bad, that would be one thing I want to mm -hmm. point out. The other thing is that, um, isn't necessarily relation to the big bad other than, um, I think I can't prove this, but I think the evidence leans towards, uh, Buffy's blood counteracting whatever spell or you know manipulation that the big bad had over spike like i because that's mm -hmm. when like he licks her cut right on her arm and then that's when he has mm -hmm. like the full flashback that's when he has the full memory of like what happened and he says i remember and then goes and like cowers in the corner and so mm, okay. there's Again, like this is just kind of me saying this, so I'm not like, like I don't know that we get an explanation, and I don't remember ever seeing anything like outlining this specifically. But if you think about, like, he says, 
earlier in the episode, like, I would have remembered tasting human blood, but hey, actually, you didn't. Like, so, so there's right. something different about Buffy's blood. And, and we've seen mm-hmm. before that Slayer blood can counteract some, like, there was the whole, like, angel uh, faith thing where she, like, poisons him magically or whatever, and, like, he has to drink Slayer blood mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, so it's not like unprecedented that like there's something special about Slayer blood that can, mm-hmm. you know, do that sort of thing. Um, in this particular instance, mm-hmm. it's it's to me it's like more a preponderance of evidence than like overwhelming evidence or whatever. Like it's not beyond the reasonable doubt sure. necessarily, but like it seems to me that like that's what like if you're looking at the order of events, you know, he he licks her cut and then like that's when the flashbacks come back in full force and he's like, Oh, I remember and runs away. And so that to me Mm -hmm. seems significant. And again, implies not so much the fallibility, but maybe defensibility against whatever this big bad is. So just to kind of throw both of those things out there um, as pieces Mm -hmm. that we can add to our growing, you know, database of information about the big bad right about whatever it is that's devouring from beneath us starting with our bottoms sure starting with your bottom um yeah interesting yeah i mean obviously that seemed a significant moment but i didn't necessarily put the connection together of of the blood itself being yeah and um, again like significant in that moment i don't know that that's that's like ever explained in the show we can watch and see if maybe it is um i don't remember it being explained and i don't know that i've ever seen like a study of it but it just it like Mm -hmm. it seems that so this you know again having watched through the series many times like and and knowing that there are other incidences incidences where um slayer blood is sort of a significant thing Right. Um, that's just sort of my feeling yeah. on the matter or, or my assessment of the matter. Mm-hmm. So, um, cool. Yeah. Any other, any other thoughts about the big bad or sort of the spike and Scooby stuff? Um, um, not really. I mean, yeah, kind of ends where we talked about of like, they're gonna, however it is that you try to learn about something that, is kind of defying the inf- settled information. Sure. They're going to try to learn what they can. And um, Spike is going to be looked after and, and watched and protected, partly because Buffy is a, a nice human <laughs> being who feels protective of Spike, despite Xander's disapproval. Um, and partly because they know that, he's being haunted by this thing. So he's a useful experiment to keep around and kind of see what it does to him and everything. Um, so yeah, we'll have to kind of watch and and see where that goes. And that's a nice moment at the end where, you know, when, and after the kind of slit, almost suicidal death wish thing, when, when he kind of says, make it quick, but then realizes like Buffy isn't going to kill him he asks for help and Buffy 
agrees, you know, that like, that's a rare thing on shows and, you know, these shows where people are very much like in trouble and not wanting to admit that they need help and, and mm -hmm. wanting to kind of take care of themselves and be independent and be strong. And, you know, I don't want to need anybody in that whole idea. Um, to have like just that kind of moment of, will you help me? Yes, I'll help you. You know, um, that was, I like that. That was cool. Sure. Yeah. And right. And so in researching, I mean, you know, I'm sure they'll uh, exhaust all of their resources. They might even try to call someone who knows about these types of things and, and, is say living in London at the moment and try to get a particular yes. point of view. And should be far away from the danger and the thing that devours from beneath. Hmm. Um, hmm. But whether or not this big bad is connected to what's going on in, in England, there are things afoot in England too, that that's not just yeah. a it's... protected idol. Um, right. Um, so this, so we get like a little scene that's kind of unexplained and then gets called back at the end with Giles. Um, so Robson and what's his, the girl, Nora. Nora? Yeah. Do we know them? Am no. I completely forgetting <laughs> no. something? Okay. Um. Or I was like, I was checking, are we supposed to know who these people are? Um. No, the, yeah, no, I, so in. I mean, Giles there, knows there's them, two, but, but we're we're not supposed to. There's know two uh, little scenes, right? One one in the beginning, but after the opening credits, which I thought, like, just structurally, right? I thought it's it was not kind quite the like cold open. Like it seemed like yeah, yeah. it might have been better if they had if they had done it before the opening credits, but um, right. right because it fits with all the the cold opens of yeah. these women being hunted right. down and and killed and right. we're not we're still kind of finding out why and yeah everything. so no we don't know them uh robson comes in in the beginning and at this point we don't know his name right he just comes in and he calls out nora and then sees her like mm -hmm. on the floor and dead and then gets attacked right, right? um and then right. we only know his name because then later Giles comes in and calls out Giles Robson. Right. <laughs> like, Robson. Um, and Robson seems to have an American right. accent. So I don't know if that's important. But he, uh, the mm -hmm. few words that he says uh, seem, at least to me, to be an American mm -hmm. accent. Um, I would hope that mm -hmm. I can recognize an American accent. But, you know. Um, yeah. I, no, we're not. We don't know them. But, yeah, I mean. Okay. And that's fine. Through, I just was checking to make sure I wasn't forgetting something. Through um, association and sort of logic, you might be able to figure out who they are. Yes. So I would, before I say anything, like I would open it to you. Like, what's your assessment of who they are and what they're doing? Um. Well, who are the kinds of people Giles knows? <laughs> Um, I mean, we know about the coven that, uh, was helping Willow, sure. um, but that seemed to be a primarily like women centered and like, yeah, this does not seem uh, nearly thing. hippy dippy enough to be a coven. No, no, no. Or like, 
matriarchal enough. Um, so sure. if we're going that with, too. <laughs> with a patriarchal uh, relationship, is this uh, another watcher? Um, is this his uh, slayer in training? Maybe. Um, those are other kinds of people that Giles knows that tend to have like older male mentor and young female protege kind of relationships. Um, and that kind of goes with at least the speculations of those other cold opens of these are, these are women who have, you know, are maybe in the list of slayers, potential slayers for the future that are being attacked by, um, these robed. Yeah. Well, and figures. Um, and also, so the, yeah. the brief bit of dialogue that we get at the very end of Robeson, uh, telling Giles to gather them and and that it's mm. starting. So, I mean, who might the them be then? Like, if we're going with that, right? Like, who are we gathering and what is it that's starting? I mean, maybe we don't have enough to sort of determine, mm -hmm. but, like, yeah. Like, so I'll, I'll throw it out. Like, I don't know that we get confirmation, but yes, like, that's that seems to be the clear you know, an, an older male, you know, and a younger female seems to be sort of the watcher, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, slayer dynamic. Although, you know, obviously Buffy's the slayer or, or, well, I guess Faith is technically the slayer at this point, if we're assuming she's still alive, um, which mm -hmm. she hasn't died on screen. So she must be right. Like, yeah, I'm um, assuming she's still alive. Yeah, yeah uh, um, but yeah, like I mean, there's been there's been no other activations of Slayers that we're aware of. So, um, but we do know from Kendra that some potential Slayers grew up with what like under the tutelage of Watchers. So this, you know, right, could right. be something along those lines. Um, but also that there's something afoot, like there seems to be some aware, whether it's the same, you know, from beneath us, it devours thing that's going on or whatever. There's, there seems to be uh, some awareness that things are happening. Um, right. And Giles knows about and, it. Right. He's, like it's, I understand. Right. The, just by the way yeah. that he shows up and sort of throws open the door, like he knows that there's trouble afoot. Right. Um, He doesn't seem to know yeah. about the axe swinging towards his head. I was going to say, like, we need to finish with the most alarming thing of this episode, which is, like, the way it ends, again, with that timing. It's not exactly comedic this time, but um, the, the ending on the axe swing, yeah. you know, like, a fraction of a second from his head is not great. Um... You know, it I mean, might not be a surprise. I have to, I have, to, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I, I have to believe that there will, that that can't be the way Giles goes down is axed to the back of the head off camera. Um, but, uh, never say never. So until I see him again, I will be worried.
you may not have long to worry. Um, <laughs> Opening scene. Of depending, the next depending on where, yeah, depending on when you like. If we get done early enough with this recording, and you depending watch it tonight, when I watch like, this episode. Right. Um, I'm not saying yes, you'll find out know. immediately, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah. Who knows? Maybe it's the opening scene. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, so, one other thing, more of a production note, and I know you wanted to end on the trials thing, but sorry. Um, we didn't bring up um, the music. Uh, and I did want to note, just because, like, probably the most recognizable musician um, mm -hmm. in Buffy, um, Amy Mann, makes an appearance here. Um, mm -hmm. And, like, I mean, I'm not a huge, like, fan of her. Like, I don't dislike her music at all. But, like, I'm not, like, I don't follow her music that well. But um, from what I know of her, probably late 90s, early 2000s was kind of her peak, uh, mm -hmm. you know, awareness and popularity. <laughs> um, I know she's done a bunch of stuff mm -hmm. since then as well. So um, maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe she's more popular, popular than ever now. But um, I know she's also appeared in a bunch of stuff. Like I know, like I think I've, I think she's been in like Portlandia and like a number of other shows. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, probably the most well-known um, artist who has appeared um, in as sort of like a bronze, you know, uh, musician. And um, the only one who really has any speaking parts, um, although I saw that on Wikipedia, but like, what about um, the female werewolf there? Uh, like oh, yeah. she was, I don't know if she's, maybe she's not considered, like maybe she wasn't actually singing or so. Like, I don't know, but like that was her whole thing, right? Was that she was like right. Right. the singer of the band and then like was whatever. Right. So right. maybe she wasn't, maybe that right. Maybe actress, they're not counting her as a musician. Right, maybe that actress yeah. wasn't actually singing. Maybe it was like overdubbed or something. Um, I don't, I'd have to go back and look at that. But um, that's at least what Wikipedia says. So don't hold me to that. Um, but uh, so it must certainly, be true. certainly from a recognizability, um, perspective, I think, uh, unless there's someone obvious, mm -hmm. like I'm forgetting, um, she's, you know, Amy Mann's probably the most recognizable and, and famous of the various, uh, musicians that they have on mm -hmm. the show. Mm -hmm. So just wanted to at least mention her there. Yeah. With that said, though, let's move on to uh, BSG. Um, and this one, too, I kind of feel like, well, we might do a little jumping around, but, it, you know, mm -hmm. we'll still kind of follow through the plot, um, maybe a bit more than we yeah. do with other episodes. Um, sure. In particular, though, I wanted to start out with Roslyn, just because we get uh, right away... You know, well, I mean, you get like the opening, like last time on BSG, and then um, you get the jump, right? Which is like the reactionary jump when Natalie gets killed, um, mm -hmm. and you immediately go into Rosalind has this sort of interstitial, you know, mid-jump projection thing going on. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that there's. 
like we can talk through like maybe just all of the scenes together like i don't know that we need to go like one by one but like um sure. it starts out they're kind of like so first of all it's it's the return of the priest right who died previously yes um whose yeah. name i forget um and i did i probably could have looked um, it up but i forget uh Elosha. Elosha. and and yes. so we get them sort of walking around um you know, walking around the, uh, uh, like, deserted Galactica. And, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, sort of commenting, oh, look how big it is when it's empty, blah, blah, blah. Um, but sort of the, the, the big thing, right, is Roslyn going to, like, see herself dying right on her deathbed. Um, mm-hmm. And what Alosha says about the people around her which uh is lee starbuck adama and then doc coddle sort of standing back anyone else in that room i don't think there is right i don't think so um it's just and sort of commenting on like the fact that like she doesn't love them but they're the closest thing that Rosalind has to family um you've been their president watch them try to comfort each other at least you haven't taken that away from them yet. You didn't rob them of their empathy yet. You just don't make room for people anymore. You don't love people. Is that clear enough? Practical enough for you, Madam President? Um, and just sort of really focusing on, yeah, that her her role, I guess, or her part as mm-hmm. the president, right? Like that she's really embraced, um, even more so recently than, you know, I mean, initially... Mm-hmm she was the reluctant president. Right. And then like, but like now it's like, like we've talked about how she's become more authoritarian and more, you know, um, specifically reactionary to Baltar, but like, Mm. but also like not really caring what anyone else thinks, including Mm -hmm. Lee, who was one time her chosen advisor and, you know, um right. Tori, who was sort of her trusted, you know, friend and, and assistant, but like now, of course, is sleeping with Baltar and, and all of that, you know, that goes along with that. Of course, when she finds out Tori's a Cylon, then <laughs> that'll be even worse, I guess. Um but Awkward. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um right. but yeah, I mean so so yeah, just that idea of like Maybe at one point it was about the people, but the office has kind of taken her over, right? Like, like even if at, mm-hmm. at one point she was reluctant to be president and, you know, we need to start making babies and, like, that kind of thing, like, that she's gotten far away from that. And, and that, mm-hmm. yeah, like, one, there's only, like, three people here plus the doctor, like, <laughs> who are, like, right. you know uh attending her and and even and it's interesting because like later we do get the reference to uh elosha being you know a manifestation of her so like like this is obviously like what she thinks of herself right like that that Mm -hmm. she's been drawing too far away and that even to these people who are like her closest friends like it's really her office her 
you know, official duties that kind of is her link to them at this point. Um, right. And the way that, like, she still cares about the fate of the people, but how much has the fate of the people become more important to her than the people themselves? Sure. That, like, you would think those two things are inseparable, but I think there's she's managed to find a dissociation there. Um, that, like, like Zara kind of said, like, the most dangerous thing is that she wants to save us all, and that's what makes her so scary. That, like, her mission as the president to find Earth and preserve humanity has become the only thing to consider rather than the wishes or the perception or the feeling of the people that she's supposedly leading and trying to save and everything. Um, yeah. And I think like you, I think people could, and I would guess have make the case of like, potentially there could be room for critique of writing there of like, has Rosalind started to become out of character? Has she moved away from her roots? But I think this kind of addresses and, kind of lampshades that a little bit and says like that's the story like we're acknowledging that she it's not that we've lost sight of who like yeah she's acting out of character and she's not acting at her best self and we're calling that out and it's kind of showing how the office has been a corrupting influence mm. or or whatever it is if it's the power is corrupting absolutely or if it's just her nearing the end of her life and the desperation to accomplish her mission before she dies that's part of it or it's a mix of all the three or it's the baltar reaction influence it's like all of it but um the fact that like i like that line of you don't love people that like that, that in season four you can say that of Rosalind of all people sure. and have it kind of be a little true mm -hmm. um kind of shows that she has changed a lot and not necessarily in good ways. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it's interesting because like, like, so that's like the projection, like inter jump stuff going on. Right. But like, even as that's happening, it's like, she does have to keep making those like practical decisions and, Right, and executive stuff. decisions, um, yeah. So you get, like, the conversations between, like, her and Hilo about, like, if there's even a chance that we can go in and blow up, you know, the resurrection hub and stop the Cylons from ever, like, resurrecting again. Like, we just, we have to do that. Like, that's not even a question. Like, it just has to be mm -hmm. done. Um, and then making the decisions to betray the Cylons and and you know, get to Deanna first and be the first one to, to gain the knowledge and possibly end up withholding that from the Cylons altogether, the, whatever, she, whatever she finds out. Um, and being willing to, you know, you know, certainly not seeing the Cylons as partners in any kind of way. Um, and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, just again, like having to be the one to make that less than empathetic <laughs> decision um, about, you know, what mm -hmm. they're doing. Um, so, yeah. Um, and so. 
Right. And part of that is the, the pressure of the leadership of when you're in charge, when you're the grown up, how much is it your responsibility to make the, the practical, like, you know, Alosha says it mockingly, but is that, is that practical enough for you, Madam President? But like, she's the president, she has to be practical. Right. Like that's the whole reason you put someone in charge is to have decisions made and things accomplished, or at least one reason, maybe that's not the only reason, but you know, there's that pressure to make the the best decision for their mission and for, you know, the fate of the people. Um, even if that's the very thing that is distancing her from mm. the people. Sure. Um, Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, on the practical side of things, it's, you know, telling Hilo that we need to blow up the hub. And, and not only that, but, you know, when you do get Deanna out, you know, bring her directly to me. Do not pass go. Do not talk to any Cylons. Um, and, you know, making that first move to betray the Cylons, um, which puts Hilo, so like kind of switching over to him for a minute, um, mm -hmm. clearly like he's uncomfortable with this and even sort of like calls her out on it. Um, that seems not honest, right? Like he's, it's like, oh, really Hilo? Like, I mean, this is like, this is, this is naive. Hilo, like he's pointing out something yeah, she doesn't Yeah, this is know. the naive Hilo, yeah. which, you know, again, like, if Hilo is like a jack of all trades, he's also like, like he also sort of fits all emotions at different times too, right? Like, because mm. like there are plenty of times when Hilo's not the like sort of naive, you know, mm. newbie, uh, you know, uh, a soldier or whatever. But like, this is totally. Mm. A, <gasps> You're being dishonest, Madam President. Like, oh shucks. <laughs> I I think my favorite Hilo joke ever is when, and of course this is a Jane Espenson line, is when he says, "Not the Sharons, not the Eights." And she's like, "Captain, you are not married to the entire production line." I just think that that like there is an element of him that like he kind of believes that that they are all, like not just all silence are the same, like they're exact copies of each other, but he wants, he loves those eights sure. and he trusts, he trusts Athena and he's, you know, wants to believe this eight that's sounding like her and maybe doesn't have a reason not to believe her. So his default is to trust until proven otherwise. And whether you want to call him naive or whether you want to call Rosalind cynical, um, I think his instinct is to be, if not naive, at least idealistic and trusting sure. and hopeful in his, he's not a cynical person. He's not a double yeah. dealer, um, you know, and, and just her, her, again, her cutting practicality of get your head out of your marriage <laughs> and think with your head a little bit here. Sure. Um, Although like, I, I think that conversation with, the eight is meant to prompt us to sort of like 
agree with Hilo a bit in that sure. in that it's yeah. not like Rosalind's obviously right that he's not married to the entire line, except that in that moment where she's like giving him the exact type of massage that he likes and that that Athena had to learn kinda mm-hmm. kinda implies that yeah, he might not be married to the entire line, but it's certainly possible that like other eights have had the same curiosity and have downloaded the same information, at least you know, to a point where they're somewhat familiar with Hilo's marriage and the particular uh, Athena stuff that has happened. And and maybe we don't necessarily agree that, like, this eight is the same as Athena. But, like, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that's what they're trying to get across, the, they being the mm-hmm. writers, in both that conversation with Hilo and then later in the conversation with the Viper pilots of, you can trust me because I am the same as Athena who you trust mm-hmm. and have flown with. Um, now, maybe that's the eight being naive more so than anyone. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's what Deanna says later, right? Is that like, you never got the idea of human deception. So like, may- mm-hmm. maybe that's, you know, maybe we can't read it more into that and assume that like, she actually is like Athena. But like, at the same time, like I... Well, and, and also her line about there's no more passionate ally than an eight until she sees something shiny, you know, sure. that, like their, their maybe loyalty a yeah. is, a, is maybe not as, it might be passionate in the moment. Um, right. And, and sincerely felt in the moment until it's distracted until it's, or, or, or betrayed right, or whatever it is, yeah. you know? Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, so there's, evidence on on both sides but definitely like i think in her conversations with hilo definitely the eight comes across as sincere and very much like athena um and yeah what reason does he have not to trust her and i think his instinct is right the same as what the silence came to in the last episode about how how are we supposed to expect them to trust us if we're planning to double cross them like the honesty has to go both ways. And if you expect honesty from them, then you have to return it. Otherwise, of course they're going to turn because you're going to give them a reason to, and it's going to become this self-fulfilling prophecy of they're going to, you're going to force them into proving the thing that you believe they're going to do. Um, Like there's a, there's a case to be made for being honest whether or not you believe the other side will do the same just to, to kind of lead by example, I guess maybe, mm-hmm. um, which is something Hilo is willing to take the risk of that Rosalind, I think definitely is. She's not going to jump first. Like she wants to see what the other side's going to do before she'll take that leap. Right. Um, so, yeah. So sort of the other um the other Rosalind thing before we can before we kind of move to like the attack and like all of that stuff um is like her and Baltar and the hybrid <laughs> um mm-hmm. which you know I don't know that there's a ton of stuff there but it is it's a very there is a pretty humorous element to yeah. uh 
you know, Roslyn and, and Baltar, who are already, like, they're already at odds just as people, right? And, you know, yeah. obviously, like, Roslyn brought Baltar on the trip because of, like, the shared dreams that she's been having and stuff and, and hoping that there can be some kind of insight. But then you get, like, Baltar, you know, talking talk about someone who's full of himself, like, you know, <laughs> yelling at the hybrid in like this sort of faux like rapport that he claims to have with it. And it just is completely hilarious. Like him, you know, making a fool of himself um, thinking that he's, you know, able to like talk to it when no one else can. And then just like realizing or maybe not actually realizing that like the hybrid just is doing its own thing anyway. Um, right. And, and I was holding the child, so I was protecting that. And she goes, no, no, it wasn't clear what (laughs) like you, you were holding the child, but let's not get carried away. Like uh, it's my vision. And I say you weren't protecting the child. Yeah. Um, right. And from Rosalind's view, like the, like he's stealing the child or threatening the the child. And then, you know, when Baltar comes in, you know, him as well are the ones taking the child and putting it in danger. And, um, yeah. So, right. Exactly. From her point of view, that's the opposite of, of her assessment. (laughs) Um, which is, yeah. Which just kind of irritates her, right? Like, you know, this is Baltar. This is what he does. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the other, And I, there, there are not many funnier Baltar things than him going, hey, hey, stop <laughs> jumping the ship. You know, just that, like, <laughs> cajoling. Oh, my gosh. So funny. Um, all right. So, so we do, you know, get to where they're ready to do the attack, and they kind of come up with this plan that really does not um, – pardon the pun, fly over well with the Viper pilots, right? Like, uh, Mm -hmm. basically, they're putting all of their lives in the hands of these Cylons who they've uh, sort of, you know, just like minutes ago were fighting, basically. Um, Minutes being a hyperbole, maybe. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's... And, and understandable too. Like, I mean, this is not an alliance that you would have necessarily thought of back when you had, you know, the uh, uh, sixes, you know, strutting around and like gloating over how they destroyed all of the colonies and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, totally understandable, um, you know, that the Viper pilots wouldn't be behind this. Um, and, you know, and you get. Uh, the eight, the, uh, we keep calling her the eight. She doesn't have a name, right? Like, you're, like we're not given a name for her. We know we don't okay. get one. No, um, I didn't think so, but I just figured I'd stop because and ask real quick. But I didn't think so. Um, so yeah, so um, I mean, I don't think we need to go into details of like the plan and stuff. Um, but basically, yeah, the Cylons tow the ships, uh, you know, the Vipers, and then, like, they basically start up when they get closer so that there's an element of surprise. 
Um, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, meanwhile, over at the hub. Well, oh, can sorry. I when I say one yeah. one quick thing about the attack? Like, as far as the plot goes, I think you're right. Like, that's straightforward. That, that that's their plan, and it is executed and everything. But the only thing I would add is like just stylistically kind of how it's done of um with the kind of beautiful music that's a little sad playing over it Mm. and and the kind of even the shots like are little slow motion and and they're orchestrated very you know kind of lyrically and and there's a kind of beautiful aspect to it the way that like it's not done as one of these like gritty bsg space battles it's Mm. like this slightly melancholy thing of if, of their kind of, yes, accomplishing their mission, but also I think with the Cylons and Hilo present, present, you're kind of invited to see this as sad. That like, yes, they are giving up their immortality. And there's an aspect of like self-sacrifice to that. And and I think the the way it's kind of shot and directed adds to that that this isn't like a triumphant right like yeah we we won the tilium refinery <laughs> sure. and like let's it's everybody cheers like it's not that it's like this okay we're taking out a major major uh you're we're meeting a major goalpost in our war against these people but look at the cost of what it means and the lives that it means and it might be necessary but there's something kind of serious about it too sure and you get that so okay so we'll come back to that because meanwhile over at the hub you have cavill and boomer waking up deanna um and i don't i mean there's some chit chat back and forth um you get creepy Cavill, you know, referring to eight as his, you know, referring to Boomer as his pet eight, um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of true, but that doesn't make it less creepy. It's still creepy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. True in the kind of, come on, Boomer, wake up kind of way, you know, like ready for her to reassert herself a little Um, bit. Um, And you get Cavill sort of eschewing the idea of like, even caring about the final five and, and asking Deanna to be the one to like help bring back together. But of course, like Cavill, he doesn't say it right, but like he says, I brought you back the Gila sister and the shameful war. But like what he, what I interpret that is and, and tell me if you think differently or, or if there's, you know, what, whether greatly differently or nuanced differently, whatever. But um, that to me means the war between the Cylons, not the war between Cylon and human, right? Like, or, yeah, or, I agree. or if yeah, it's yeah. between Cylon and human, like the way to end the war is help us reunite the other Cylons and then kill all the humans. <laughs> like, like that right. to me seems right. to be what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you know, it never even occurred to me that he might mean 
kill the the rift with humanity yeah that that's so far out of the right. realm of and possibility so, that this not anything you would ever and maybe i totally that, like, am just like stating the obvious here that's certainly possible but no i mean i think that's a sane person might want that you know <laughs> but that's a mark of how depraved cavill is that like he doesn't want peace with the humans no. he wants you know unification of the cylons or unification behind his ideas of the sign what silence right. should be as as and the united one, in their war course. against humanity right. yeah um yeah right right so that's how i take that statement as and and there's kind of a threat there even of if you're not going to help us then we'll just box you again <laughs> like <laughs> um, sure. again maybe not stated quite in that exact way but but that seems to be the implication um right 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 i'm waking you up for a purpose and and it's my purpose like help me yeah, achieve if that you don't, yeah. if you don't do it then you're no good to me why do i need um, you yeah which is interesting i didn't actually think about this while i was watching it but it was in, it, that's interesting in light of like the practicality statements uh you know that mm you know, uh, between Rosalind and, well, Alosha, head, head Alosha. Mm -hmm. um, right. Cavill certainly doesn't love people. Sure. Or, Not but even like even, people. right. Even like you know? Cylon people. Right. Like. Right. Um, right. Right. No, he's all about the mission and the practical goals that he has um, laid out. Which yeah. don't include the final five. Because he also says, like, because mm -hmm. Deanna asks him about, right? Like, why don't you, why don't you ask about the final five? And he's basically like, I, he, well, he says, I don't believe we're meant to know that. And so Cavill, right? So thinking back to like his, his uh, role as like a priest or whatever, right? And, but also, like, the fact that he's, like, an atheist. Like, he's stating a belief here, right? Like, I don't believe that we're meant to know that. And it's like, well, but what drives that belief then? Um, hmm. is, it, is it belief in, like, you think it's not, like, your destiny or whatever to know who the final five are? Or is it more, uh, is it more, like, practical cavil of, like, everyone's looking to the final five to like make these big decisions for like the future of the Cylon race. And if that happens, then does Cavill lose his say in the future of the Cylon race? Right? Like. Right. Well, and the, the line we're not meant to know them implies that there's meaning. Like who means you to do anything? Sure. You know, like if, if, from a kind of atheist, if, if you're taking a hardline atheism, there is no meaning in a sense of higher purpose. It's, it's the universe is what it is in a materialistic sense. And, and you, you are your right, only you and you, whatever decider you, of meaning, yeah. right? Your meaning is, is internal that you can mean yourself, but nobody is going to tell you 
what your life means um, or is supposed to be. There's nothing outside right. of yourself to determine that. Yeah, there is a weird um, but sort that of... But kind of, the way he states it, there's a weird belief yeah. aspect to it, like you said. Or, that or like, fatalism, at least. It, like, yeah, something that... Sure. Right, like something beyond just... Right, that, like you said, the more materialistic or... or it's not like a randomness. Yeah. It's not like I don't want us to know them. It's like we're not meant to. There's a sense there, which is a little contradictory of some of his... It betrays a different philosophy than he normally seems to you know, espouse, project. Yeah. Espouse, yes. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, and so, and then, of course, you know, it turns to the idea that if, you know, uh, the hub gets blown up, that they're going to all have permanent deaths, which segues nicely into Deanna's, well, then, this is going to mean a lot more, um, which is reflective of what Natalie said, right, to the quorum and all of that, that, you know, hmm. by dying... You know, by not being able to be resurrected again, it actually gives life more meaning than than they currently have. Um, but of course, mm -hmm. in this particular case, it means when I kill you, <laughs> then you can't come back. My revenge is all the more right. sweet. Yeah. Um, which she does. Like, here, let me kill you moments before the resurrection ship gets blown up. And I mean, even if he like, even if there's like time to download into a new body, there's not enough time to do that and escape, right? Like, so there's right, right. Uh, yeah, definitely, uh, yeah, definitely a danger there to to his existence. Um, mm -hmm. Which is kind of satisfying, I have to admit. Like Cavill is certainly not my sure. favorite. Cylon, which I mean, I think intentionally, no. like I think he's sort yeah. of, from a writer's perspective, meant to be hated. Like I don't think there's ever, like I think, right, all of the other Cylons. Right. Is he the closest thing to a pure villain? In yeah, show? I was gonna say, like of all the other Cylons, I feel like each one at least has moments where you're like, okay, maybe overall I don't like them, or maybe there's some really bad things that they've done, but like there's also some redeeming qualities. And I just don't see that in Cavill mm. at all. Um, mm -hmm. Which is fine. Like, some people are just like that. There are just some people who have no redeeming qualities. <laughs> like uh, Rosalind thinks of Baltar. Sure. Like, well, there's Although, some people that are I mean, worst, we'll get back. You know. So we'll, we have to jump back to the other ship in a few minutes here. But yeah, like that, even yes. that, like, breaks down. Yeah, no, I think on a show that really goes out of its way to have uh, everybody be as gray as they can possibly be, Cavill is easily, I think, the the one the, the who darkest gray falls perhaps. furthest outside of yeah, yeah, um, um. yeah. So, uh, yeah, um, De so Deanna kills Cavill. Puts on a robe and leaves with Hilo and the eight. 
um, going back a moment to that to what you were saying before about sort of the meaning, like like that we get Hilo's sort of moment of revelation about how much this actually means, right? When he sees mm-hmm. all of the bodies and like one of them being an ape right up front, right, like front and center of like this is this is what destroying the hub means. It's it is mm-hmm. genocide in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, the Cylons. That's true. And it's when you put it that way, it's the most direct payback for the, the opening genocide that there's been sure. so far. Like, I mean, this is by far from a tactical point of view, the most severe blow that they've dealt, but also there's a kind of like, sadly an eye for an eye aspect of mm-hmm. it too you know of like well you know we're committing that genocide and it's and it's permanent yeah. so but, you're just like us in in good ways and bad but i you know i mean i think the difference being that like i don't think any of the humans other than maybe Hilo now considered it genocide because there's a different like and maybe it's maybe it's only a um terminology thing but there's a difference mm-hmm. between saying we killed a bunch of people and we prevented a bunch of people from resurrecting again like that's mm-hmm. that's the like preventing people from resurrecting just means like okay but they can still live out the lives that they have now i mean minus the ones we're shooting down outside right now going on like right like we're not taking anything away from them we're just not allowing them to like cheat and come back later well i think the maybe even for me the biggest difference too is that this was done with the express invitation of the cylon people sure. not all of them <laughs> not all of them but like that this was like yeah. well a thing that a certain you know, half or more of the Cylons decided that this was a good thing. Sure. You know, that this was like, this is going to make us well, better. This is going to improve our lives and make them more meaningful and, and increase our te- humanity rather technically than... Technically not quite half, know. right? Because Boomer defected. Um, That's true. Just less than half. Uh, yeah. a sh- right, a shade less than half. But I mean, where so where I was going with that, though, was was that like, there are actual now i i don't know the biomechanics and you know whatever like i don't so are all these just sort of like empty soulless bodies in which case maybe it's not technically genocide right like mm-hmm. but that seems to be sort of the horror that hilo realized how hilo right? is seeing it right? um right at least that's how i read him seeing it um mm-hmm. so yeah i you know read that for however you will but that seems to be uh what's going on there is that yeah there is a sort of eye for an eye thing to it um but i don't think anyone thinks of it that way i think they just think of it as mm-hmm. we're preventing um you know we are preventing them from you know resurrecting again not we're killing all of these Cylons in this ship Mm -hmm. anyway uh 
So they get back to the ship. Um, they get back to the base star. You know, Hilo and whatever. Oh, and so in the middle of the battle, too, you get like the explanation of Lieutenant Pike, you know, jumping back. Right, and that right. we, we saw that other right. part of it but last week, but um, just to sort of bring that back around. But um, yeah, so they get back to the ship and um, sort of in the meantime, right, during the battle, um, the other funny moments of Baltar, of course, are when he's proselytizing the. Cylon, um, <laughs> and I just I love like preaching preaching revolution as he does, you know, talking to the working right. men, relating to them, and like a, knowing a, knowing you know, that human level they've had yeah. their you know logic inhibitors removed, right? Like, so these right, are right. So this is the these first, are fully yeah. fully thinking centurions. Um, there's also like right. like if. I mean, I don't want to call Baltar Jesus, but there is that sort of aspect to him, right? Like, just the idea of, of like, a Christ figure talking to a centurion, right? Like, of, of like, the whole, like, you know, sure. preaching to... Hey, he gets wounded in his Right, side. well, yes, exactly. So, like, there are, like, these little, like... Yeah. I don't know how... I don't know how much of that is right. intentional or not, but it is... There is sort of, like, that idea... But, uh, right, or how much it might just be a little joke for those sure, who kind of pick up sure. on it, you know. Um, but there is that, I mean, he is a, a becoming a, a ironically messianic sort of Right, yeah, no, and, for and I people. do think there probably is a deeper exploration that you can make of Baltar as a Christ figure, as much as, like, I sort of half-choke when even saying that. Um <laughs> But yeah, like it is like definitely funny to just have him sitting here or standing here talking, you know, and like, oh, you're on the lowest end of the scale, my friend. Yes, you are. Which is odd to think when you like and he's preaching like the, the, the one God, right? Like, like this is a Cylon and he doesn't know about. Well, like, I assume he mm -hmm. I don't actually know. Do Maybe the centurions aren't don't have a sex, but um, or gender or whatever. Um and then he's like, what? Oh, they told you about God, didn't they? <laughs> like, like very like, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, God doesn't want any of his creations to be slaves. Not that you're slaves. Exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and then, yeah. you know, telling. They're not slaves. Exactly. And, that, that sly little. Look um, that and then, yeah. I mean, the best one is, is the story about the dog and the master placing the bit of food on the edge of its snout. And you get like the Cylon cocking its head and he's just like, yeah, yeah. uh-huh. Pathetic, huh? <laughs> like, <laughs> just it, it's like the most baltar thing um again just going back to like the jane Espenson-ness of it all like the most yeah. baltar thing that nobody but her could have thought of um it seems right, like right. i mean again you never know like who wrote what line or whatever but that totally seems like the type sure, of thing sure. that she um would write so um just hilarious but yeah no i mean all of that like you said, he gets wounded inside because there's like an explosion and parts go flying and the Cylon gets uh, sort of destroyed and he gets like a piece of shrapnel in his abdomen or whatever. Um, 
gets taken to Roslyn, um, who like immediately just sort of jumps in and starts helping him, right? Like, to her credit, like good, like she's mm-hmm. her pettiness isn't that bad, you know, against Baltar that she's like willing at least immediately to let him die. Um, yeah, and then like. You know, she gives him the drugs, and he starts sort of talking, and she, like, sees her chance, right? Like, th- like what is the thing that we've been trying to get him to admit all along? Um, that, right. I mean, that she saw, was it season one or, or maybe two, right? Like, the whole, like... Season one, when they put him in the break, and she's like, I can't prove it, but I know that you were yeah. behind it. Um, yeah, right. Like, for, so it's the whole show, basically. You She's know, been and, convinced. And yeah. so now, finally able to get him to admit under the influence of morphine, or sorry, morpha. Um, totally morpha. a different thing. Um, yes. That he gave the access codes to the Cylons and wiped out humanity, but also that he doesn't feel guilty about it, right? Nobody blames right. the flood. Oh, that makes it, yeah. A flood is, right. which, I mean. Right, he's the hand of God. What do you want from him? He just sure. is this instrument that God, you know. Which is what uh, Head Six. Through and that's what Head Six has been telling him all along, right? Like, I mean, this is, mm-hmm. maybe it's taking a little brainwashing to get there, but um, it's his own brain who's washing it. So, I don't know. Does that even make sense? But um, anyway. Let's not think about that one too hard. Uh, but yeah, you know, through the flood, mankind is rejuvenated. So like he goes from like admitting he did this thing to like absolving himself to then like saying like, oh, it was actually a good thing because mankind is rejuvenated and born again. And God made man, uh, made the man that made the choice and God made us all perfect. So like, he goes from like I'm guilty of this thing to we're all yeah. perfect and I'm perfect. <laughs> like, um, yeah. right. in his right. sort of right, my guilt flies away like drug induced yeah. confession. Um, right, right. So with Rosalind's um, her process from moving from trying to save him to kind of trying to kill him, it's not just that he. Um, confesses the thing she's been trying to get him to confess for like four years. Um, it's it's also that he, like you said, he has no remorse yeah. for it. That he totally has rationalized it in his own mind and doesn't even feel shame because of it. Yeah. Um, well, right. And so that, I mean, that's kind of, that was kind of my question or what my question was going to be was like, yeah, does... Like, had he just admitted it and not gotten into the whole other, we're perfect and mm. God made us perfect and whatever. Um, like, would she have just accepted that confession and been like, okay, well, we'll deal with this when we get back to the ship. But still, like, but, like, not ripped off his mm. bandage so that, like, he bleeds out, you know? Um, right. Well, yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know. And now that you bring that up, I'd almost like to watch it again and kind of watch, study her performance there to see the wheels turning. And at what point does she yeah. really? And I don't, 
can we identify the moment where she makes that decision? Because it could be the like complete uh, callousness of it. The fact that it there's there's not a sense or he flirts with hovers with the idea of remorse right. and then and then wipes it away and is it more that that pushes her over the edge than yeah, than just the simple act of because it would be just as satisfying to get the confession and then like i don't know how but use that to reopen the trial and, sure. and give him justice or, but or like, find out that he's like it, tormented by his action. Right, right. But he's not. <laughs> right. 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 So the satisfaction isn't about justice for his crime. It's about like having to end his life right there. That like he can't I she can't allow him to live. Um if this is his attitude about how things went down. Um Oh, yeah. So he admits it. So, yeah. So she, you know, pulls away the dressing that she just put on, lets him bleed for a bit. Um, but then comes to her own, like, moment of remorse and, like, patches him back up again. Um, so. Good for her. Um is this so is that itself a refutation of like the projection that like maybe she does come to have a little more empathy in that moment than right she was chastising right. her well, herself and I, for not having well and i think it's a like it's a reversal within the episode like it's not necessarily saying you're wrong to think that I've distanced myself from people. It's more like a decision at the end to go against that instinct. That like, not just to do the, you know, what she thinks is right and practical and fair and just and all these things, but to make a choice based on empathy for somebody, the person she hates more than anybody. That like, you know, I guess that's the the just love someone. It's like, well, it's easy to love her loved ones, but yeah. loving someone like Baltar is because he doesn't deserve it. Is kind of at least on a personal level the bigger demonstration. I think. Like, does that mean that Baltar doesn't deserve justice for his crimes on like a corporate level? Not necessarily. But I think for Roslyn on a personal level, like, is she going to be the the uh, judge, jury, and executioner of his life? And I think her, she decides not to. Like, it's a decision to go against that temptation and to do something loving for her enemy. Um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, that for me, that's the... It's like that waking up and realizing she actually doesn't want to kill someone and like then the panic of what if it's too late and i mean we joke a lot about flipping a coin to figure out what you really want i kind of in a way feel like that's what she does is like it's not until she tries to kill him that she realizes she doesn't want to kill him <laughs> you know and it's like trying to fix the mistake after she's like only in actually 
giving him what she thinks he deserves, can she realize like how it would feel to actually do that to somebody? And it's not that he doesn't deserve it. Like Alosha says, like, it's not that he's done more good than he's done bad, but for Rosalind, that's not the point. It's about what can she do to somebody? Um, okay. So last few minutes here. Um, the conversation with Deanna. Uh, I mean, not real long here. Basically, Deanna refuses to answer her questions. <laughs> long story short. Um, oh, so you know about the Another final great flies? Espenson touch yeah. with, oh, you don't know you're one of them? Psych! Yes. Like, yeah. No, that is great. Interjecting humor into the most tense of situations. Because you kind of have to remember, like, at this point, the audience doesn't know who the fifth Cylon is. You could totally, I think you're meant to totally buy it for a moment yeah. there. So to have that kind of become a big joke is kind of hilarious. Sure, and you've already sort of had the fake out with Starbuck, right? Like, coming back and, right, and sure. everyone thinking that she could be the Cylon. Um, yeah, no, that's a great little fake out of, yeah, you don't know you're it. Um, Look, <laughs> your face. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, again, like, Deanna refuses to give any information um, that she might know. Um, because, as she kind of says, like, information's all I got. Like, there's... She doesn't really have anything at this point. And um, it's an interesting sort of vulnerability uh, mm. that she has. Although... I mean, when you think about it, like, even going back to, like, her sort of disguise as a reporter, like, that's what reporters are, right? Like, they're dealers in information, kind of. Um, mm, and, sure. And in presenting the information in a certain way and, and all of that. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting that's where she is now. Like, she has, mm. she has her source and she's protecting it and... Uh, if she doesn't protect herself, then those things, you know, the those final five, uh, basically as long as she, unless they reveal themselves, like, she she's safe, right? Like, as long as she has that information. Um, so, yeah. Right, right. And I'm the only three in the whole darn universe, so there's no backups, like... If you, mm -hmm. you can't, if, if, if you lose me, that information gets lost with me. So, um, right. Which I think with all the Cylon and human double dealing, nobody really considers the fact that maybe the three won't play ball, you know, like oh, we'll keep the information for ourselves or we'll bring her over here and then we'll know who the five are. Like, what if she won't tell you? Like, I don't think anybody really thinks about that. That like, oh, there's another factor in this. And that's Deanna's decision to actually reveal what she knows. Um, so with that being the case, of course, they return to where they're supposed to be meeting up with 
the Galactica, and it's just Bill, William, just in the Bill. cockpit of a raptor waiting. <laughs> um, Husker. Husker, right. Gotta use his call sign. Um, and their professions of love, or well, her profession of love, and his sort of Han Solo-esque reply of ab- Solo about answer, time. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, which is, you know, funny. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, oh, one other thing. Speaking of Husker, um, one of the interjump projections, he's reading to her. From Sea right. Rider Falcon. So it seems to me that it's kind of a Robinson Crusoe story. Like it's. Mm. Oh, yeah, because it's like, like about being, being alone on an island and he's like of. planting things right. and like, yeah, I don't know, it just mm. occurred to me. Um, I don't. I, yeah. I wonder if like. It would be interesting to see like which writer, like what did the writers do? Um, like did they do, like did she just get to write like whatever she wanted like for that like it's like maybe the outline is like you know excerpt from Sea Rider Falcon and then like she just got to write whatever she wanted like was part of the right, story right. like um, I don't I wonder if anyone's put together like all of the excerpts of Sea Rider Falcon anywhere like I'm sure someone has because people right. are weird and do that sort of thing. Is that the same one that was like Caprica City? She was yes. Right. Like that's like that the opening. One. Right. Like, so, which is interesting <laughs> when you think about it that way. Cause like now it's like, yeah, you're going from like this urban, you know, Caprica city right. to like what sounds to be like a deserted Island, you know? Um, right. 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 Re- reclaiming. And, Nature. and so, the, uh, well, and the other question then becomes, like, how much of that is, like, a metaphor of, like, the journey of the BSG then, right? Because, like, that's kind of where they end up, right. is, like, this lonely planet out in the middle of nowhere that's otherwise uninhabited. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's more than just one person, but, like, yeah, like, is, sea, is like, right. Adama Sea Rider Falcon? Like, you know. Sure. Maybe. Right. I don't yeah, I would like to uh, keep tracking this this motif yeah. and see what other. I'm totally. Like, I can't remember whether the book ever shows up again past this point, but I definitely want to try to remember to like yeah. look for little Sea Rider Falcon connections um, and stuff. I feel like there's a paper in there somewhere. Anyway. Sure. On that note, do um, it. I was gonna say let's end, but yeah. Uh, maybe we'll see. I've got other papers to write first um, <laughs> before I write. Although it, it would go, it, it it could go good with like a paper on like fictional fiction, right? Like fi- like right. fictional works in works of fiction. Right. Yes. Um, all right. I guess I'm thinking about that. So we should end this. <laughs> the bottle because um, it's clearly we're past our time and this is not useful to anyone um, so thank you all we'll be back so um, just reminder that we've got uh, more Buffy next week because we're kind of in that spate of like four episodes yeah. um, where we're 
you know, where Angel was taking its midwinter break. Um, right. Oh, and speaking of mid mid season breaks, next is the mid season break of BSG, right. the last one before the writers' strike. Right. So it was like it, a long it, break. <laughs> a year. A year. Um, so yeah, probably was supposed to be a couple months, and then got extended six months or so or more because of uh, the the strike in. 2008 or whatever that was seven or eight something like that so yeah so the 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 cliffhanger ending which of course there is one it was particularly uh yeah you know gut-wrenching so something to from a from a meta point of view something to bear and and then i'm not knowing if they would come back like, sure. what if the strike goes on so long that they that sci-fi cancels the show or something? So there's, I like that that'll, I, I want to talk about that hovering over the end of the episode. This is a potential series finale, yeah. you know, um, not by design, but potentially by accident, it could have been. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but we have one more episode before that. Yeah, well, the end of the episode is is the last. I'm saying like we that's that's the we've got one more episode and then that's the break. Yes, in between the next episode and the following one is the year long hiatus. Yeah. Cool. Yep. So definitely want to talk about that a bit next time. I'm guessing we shall. Um. All right. So yeah. All right. See you then. Thank you.